think rewilding needs to be looked at as a kind of ally of farming. Think of all the extreme weather events that are hitting us all the time and going to be increasing as climate change takes hold. Um, Rewilding can provide the physical buffers to protect agricultural land. and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today we're talking about taking risks for nature and are joined by Isabella Tree from the pioneering conservation project at the Nepp Estate in Sussex and author of the wonderful book Wilding. Good morning, Eva. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of The Lodgecast. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning, good afternoon or good evening to those of you listening um, from around the world. How are you all doing? <laughs> A collective. We're how, really good. How are you doing, actually? <laughs> I'm really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I have to say I'm so excited for this episode. I can't wait to talk to Izzy. Um, she's just a legend and a lovely person and just totally humble about the incredible things that she and her family and the team at NEP have done over the years and just really kind of setting a new bar for for the new norm and how we should be treating the land and, and talking about nature. So yeah, I'm very excited. Completely. The state of nature is so poor that we really have to push the envelope now, take big risks and do new things and as you say, Izzy's an amazing person. Um, I actually felt like I got to know her a bit more on the Desert Island Discs that she did. That was excellent. Nice. Highly recommend it. Um, okay. you know, down to earth, meet the person type of, um, mm. with some great tune choices as well, may I say. But um, oh. yeah, <laughs> big ambitious projects like Net Estate are really becoming strongholds for British wildlife, which we really, really need now. New environmental leadership Um, And projects like these are so important for giving threatened species a habitat, but also for creating a place where more research can be done and we can get a better understanding of what our native species need and how best to help them. Mm, Definitely. And I first came across Izzy when um, several people just suddenly started recommending her incredible book, Wilding. And it's just one of the few nature books that I read incredibly quickly because I just can put it down by trade. Uh, Izzy is a journalist and she's written many travel books. And so she's an amazing writer anyway. Mm. But then to tell this incredible, unique and just a really hopeful story about the Nepa state was just um, made for an incredible read. And to be able to be sort of walked through as a reader, step by step, the trials and tribulations and just mm. The barriers involved into revolutionising how they use their land, um, just can't recommend it enough. One of the things that fascinated me or interested me about the Wilding book was how many non-nature and wildlife folk were reading it. It was on yeah. everyone's bedside, bed stands, you know, yeah. and it was it really broke through that because it's such a fascinating and new thing to do. Mm, yeah, Totally. Now, Eva, you Oh, last time I checked, you don't own a huge castle estate unless something drastic has changed <laughs> since not. we last spoke. 
But you are a lady who loves working with the land, gardening for wildlife, growing your own food, having your famous chickens. Um, So do you have, I mean, what are your thoughts on, you know, size of things and how does, say, the success and story of NEP translate into the person with a garden or a little patch of land? Well, I mean, this is a huge topic itself and definitely one for series four of the Lodgecast, the whole scale of wilding and... um, Gardening for nature. I, I, it would be great to get someone on to talk about that. But I, it's something that's really important to me. And when you um, start to look at, like any climate action, when you start to scale up and multiply by the number of small gardeners mm. in Britain, your action really matters. And so um, with a couple of friends around here, we do some really nice organic gardening and, and take it quite seriously and just absolutely love it. So, mm. yeah, I I do dream of, of a nep, but uh, my little <laughs> nearly two acres is great. And we've done things like um, no mow in the orchard and the lawn and, and the change is dramatic. Even in mm. one season, you stop mowing things. Um but one of the great things that can easily translate is the perceived mess, inverted commas. Mm. So, you know, farm farming is a very straight, you know, margined, uh, you know, um, system. And when you mm. look at NEP, it's just messy and wild. And, and that's mm. um, hard for some people to get their heads around because it's such a big change. And it's the same with a small garden. So Yeah. Yeah. You've um, spoken to me before about giving nettles space to invade. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, they're imp- an important habitat. You know, ladybirds, uh, for example, will lay their eggs on nettles and they are in turn a useful um, predator for some of the crop raiders in an organic garden. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I try and do that. And But you can also use nettles for um, manure and um, uh-huh. so make nettle, nettle tea. Great source of nutrients. A firm favourite in the Pavel household. <laughs> well, for your, for your veg patch. So, yeah, yeah. there's lots of things that you can do. And it's, it's again, it's a, on a much lo- smaller scale. It's still a privilege to have a big garden. So mm. um, nettles in a really small garden might not feel like the right choice, but they can be really important. And yeah, again, when you multiply it up, it's, it's valuable for nature. Um, I'm not sure anything we're doing in our garden is massively breaking the mould, but... I think it's just setting that same standard. And I think just the the hardest thing is to change how humans see things. We get so stuck in our ways and and we choose to to put labels on things and we get very uh, anxious and uncomfortable if things suddenly change. And so what I think this conversation with Izzy is going to be so vital for is just showing us the power of just shifting those baselines, changing the way we see things and with a much more hopeful wild uh, biodiverse world because of it Mm. and something that everyone can do is ask why Mm. why do we do that why do we cut Mm. that why do we spray that and what if we didn't what if we let that because that's what izzy and charlie Mm. did they said what if we do this and had a go at it Mm. and it's really that's amazing thought and action leadership so i can't wait to talk to her um so i actually went there i don't know if you've been so yes fleeting Fleeting. So I went there to stay in their, one of their tree houses. And then there was a thunderstorm that night. And I was so nice. terrified it was coming oh, really? closer. And I was like, trees, thunderstorms, aren't you going to get away from them, not sleep in them when there's lightning? <laughs> um, so that was uh, very amusing. But yeah, we survived. So that's all. quite exciting. Very exciting. Made for yeah. an extra dramatic visit. That's very cool. Incredible place to visit. Mm, no, it really is. I think what struck me when I went to NEP was just the noise, just the, the the kind of soundscape of 
of NEP and it is under the Gatwick flight path. It's very connected. You can see the light pollution of London at night in the distance. So you're not, you know, it's not like you're in the Cairngorms or in the middle of nowhere. You're in an accessible, busy part of the southeast of England. And yet animals and nature have found a place there and Mm. just the noise is astonishing. And I went in the autumn and so I can only imagine what spring must be like. Yeah, completely. Well, I think it is time we speak to Izzy herself. So dialing in from one of the most talked about estates in the UK, in conservation and wildlife circles at least, and no doubt in a room not too far from nesting storks or with a view of some mighty longhorn cattle, here is author Isabella Tree. So Izzy, welcome to the Lodgecast. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's really lovely to have you. So first of all, we need you to do something very important as we need you to judge this episode's beaver fact off. And as it turns out, there is almost a never ending supply of interesting beaver facts. So each episode, Eva and I come armed with our favourite beaver fact, some are more tenuous than others. And then it's your job (laughs) as our guest um, to decide which fact you think is better or more interesting. So I'll kick off. Um, now, this is almost opinion than fact, but but we'll see we'll see what you think. Um, many people say that beavers cannot climb due to being very bottom heavy as mammals. They have poor eyesight. They have webbed feet, so you'd think they'd be quite slippery on a slope. But there are a number of videos emerging online and rumours spreading showing beavers scaling near vertical banks, climbing trees. I've seen them climb some quite large willow trees and so I'm personally claiming that they in fact can climb very well (laughs) and that in fact beaver climbing skills are a vital part of beaver ecology. I claim that more than a fact. Okay and my fact is that beaver fur is incredibly dense so it has around 10,000 hairs per square centimetre which is quite amazing compared to humans typically only have 100 to 200 hairs per square centimetre or maybe 50 in my case. (laughs) (laughs) on its way out but ten thousand hairs per square centimeter really dense i have to say i go for that one i absolutely love it i we we know beavers can climb i mean you know having having had a bit of experience with them here at net for a very brief moment they are the ultimate escapologists um and um fair uh, enough we love them for it um but i think they're hugely adventurous and and i'm sure they're incredibly versatile and can can cope with all sorts of obstacles and climb trees and stuff. But and I knew that their fur was very thick and obviously why it was so prized back in the day for, for beaver pelts. But knowing how many hairs per centimetre, I think is just fantastic. I, I, and I would love to know how that, how that compares with, for example, a polar bear or something like that. Do you know that was the next step? I should have done that. We'll, we'll do, we need to do more research. Mm, we shall follow up. A snow leopard or something, yeah. Oh, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Well done, Eva. Thank you. Good one. Delighted. (laughs) Um, Right, Izzy, for listeners who haven't, I don't know how they wouldn't have, but for those who haven't heard about Nepostate or those who haven't read your fantastic book, Wilding, could you perhaps give us the highlights and maybe if you can, in a nutshell, what are you and your husband, Charlie Burrell, doing with the land you have? And why did you shift from farming to nature regeneration? Well, we inherited this lovely piece of land um, from Charlie's grandparents in the 1980s. It's three and a half thousand um, acres of 
Well, it's very heavy Sussex clay, so it's a kind of been a bit of a double-edged sword. But um, when we inherited it, it was under intensive arable and dairy farm management. And the business was failing. It was losing money hand over fist, even with farming subsidies. For 17 years, Charlie, who was trained at Agricultural College, did everything he possibly could to turn its fortunes around. You know, he invested in better machinery, in infrastructure. We experimented with Charlie Burrell's Castle Dairy ice cream. Um, We did all sorts of things. And of course, inevitably, more fertilizer, more chemical inputs on the land. And it took about 17 years to realize that what we were always battling with was our really heavy Sussex clay. We sit on 320 metres of this stuff. Um, So in winter, it's like porridge. In summer, it bakes as hard as concrete. And it it means effectively that for farming, if you have a really wet winter, as most of our winters are, you cannot sometimes get heavy machinery onto this land for six months of the year. So you can't do any of your maintenance, any of your track maintenance, your ditches, your your hedge cutting. You can't even sometimes sow spring crops. So you just cannot be competitive with um, mm. farms on lovely loamy soil. Um, you know, we're always going to need land for agricultural production, but it really needs to be places where it's profitable and free draining, lovely, naturally rich soils, not on marginal land like us. So we, we decided, Charlie really, uh, my husband made this momentous decision to, to give up farming in 1999. And luckily, it was very timely. It just managed to, we managed to sell our milk quota at the high point before it crashed the very next year. It was also the year of um, just before the um, foot and mouth outbreak. So we managed to escape that. So mm. we managed to clear our debts um, by selling our farm machinery and our beautiful three dairy herds. And we really wanted to do something that was going to work with the land rather than battling against it all the time. And we were inspired by the work of Franz Vera, the Dutch ecologist, who um, had just uh, published his work, uh, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, in English that very same year. And it was kind of sending hmm. ripples of sort of shock waves, I think, through the the conservation and, and ecological community at the time. Because France was, what, what his work really identifies is that free roaming large herbivores, everything from bison to tarpan to aurochs to red deer to reindeer to wild boar to beavers, mm. are keystone species and that they shape the landscape, they create habitats. And if you want to recover biodiversity, then you need to put these animals back in the landscape and allow them to do their disturbance to create habitat for you. Um, Obviously, some of those species are now extinct. So what you can do is use proxies of, for example, instead of the aurochs, the primeval ox that went extinct, um, we have its domesticated descendants. So we're using an old breed of cow, the longhorn cow, um, and we're using... um, Exmoor ponies in place of the tarpan, the original horse, and we're using um, Tamworth pigs to imitate the disturbance of wild boar. And so once you put these animals back into a landscape, you're kind of kick-starting natural processes and you're allowing them to, to, to put nature back in the driving seat. They are the, 
the drivers, the impetus that kind of pulls the glider back into the sky again so mm. it can fly. And then as human beings, you just sit back and wait to see what happens. Mm. I, m- I imagine that you say when you, you decided to give up farming in, what was it, 1999, that can't have been an easy decision. I mean, how important are taking massive risks for not only, I guess, business, but also conservation and biodiversity and, and nature? Well, it, it was certainly no risk from an economic point of view. <laughs> we were, you know, the, True. The, the farming business was almost bankrupt. I mean, and it was bankrupt. I mean, you know, uh, we, we rarely made a profit. I think there were two years in those 17 that we actually made a profit. But also we were endlessly having to spend money on capital outlay the whole time. So there was just no future in it. So giving up was just pure relief, actually, once we'd made hmm. that decision. Um I think it was more really of an emotional challenge. I think, you know, you, you, you have generations of a family. Charlie's family have been here for over 200 years. Farming. Farming is in their DNA. I remember his aunt, Penelope, telling me that, you know, as children, they were sort of told that they would only go to heaven if they could make two blades of grass grow where one had grown before. You know, that's Gosh. how much they kind of were vested in farming this landscape. So when you give up that sort of scale of farming, it's really going against the grain, literally, of your own family's DNA and the farmers around us who still couldn't understand Mm. why we were doing this. Um, But really, I think Charlie was very clever. I mean, I think he, he saw on the horizon that farm subsidies sooner or later would go There was a lot of talk in Europe about the unsustainability of farming subsidies. I think when we were farming, that 56% of the entire EU budget went on farming subsidies. I think now it's more like 34% or something, but it's still massive and it's unsustainable. And it's, it's driving a system that we know is environmentally destructive. So sooner Mm. or later, something was going to give. And it, mm. without subsidies, we were totally shot. Um, so the shocking thing to us now is that we realise that if farming had been profitable on our land, we probably would still be doing it. Mm. Um, and we know now how destructive we were being. And yeah. we've been now on this long journey um, and we now recognise what we can bring back to the land when you allow it to rest and recuperate and regenerate on its own and we look back in horror with what we were doing when we even in those days we we considered ourselves to be nature lovers we didn't think we were doing anything Hmm. wrong yeah you say you're going against the grain and there's so so many questions that arise for me here but um going against the grain with your family but also against farming generally and the perceived um you know next steps and i wonder how Far. I know that you give talks far and wide and there's loads of interest in rewilding, which is so great. How far is are other people joining in? Are you seeing much of a shift? And is that locally because um, your experience has been on the, the heavy clay soils in Sussex and, and are you seeing people around you shift? Or do you think that there's going to be, that needs to happen? Yeah. How, how do we make more people do this? And what's your experience been in terms of what people are doing? I, I think I think it is happening. And I think it, it's really, really exciting. Um, I, I don't know if you heard, you know, George Eustace's, you know, statement the other day, um, yes. you know, saying that, you know, there's going to be money 
to be paid to farmers for rewilding or creating more space for nature. This is exactly what we need. Um, the government now is giving very clear directives to farmers to start farming responsibly in a in a regenerative way. We are we are changing the way we're looking at land management, which is absolutely amazing. We're now, you know, going to be rewarding farmers for um, restoring soils, for cutting the amount of inputs and chemicals, for looking after their watercourses and all of that. That's the carrot. And we're also hopefully <laughs> going to be threatening with a stick. If you do actually pollute, you're going to be held responsible. So the direction of travel is absolutely going in the right way. Um, and I think rewilding needs to be looked at as a kind of ally of farming. You know, a, a year or so ago, I mean, you know, farmers still are talking in the, sometimes in these terms that, you know, rewilding is is seen as a threat or it's it's competing for land that might be used for farming. But increasingly, I think the story is becoming more nuanced and that mm. people are beginning to understand that we're not going to be rewilding everywhere. We're always going to need productive land for intensive food production. But rewilding can really provide the life support system that farming needs to survive and actually even to be sustainable and increase its yield. So if you have rewilding threading through your your agricultural landscapes, your, your landscapes everywhere, um, it can provide the services like water storage, it can replenish your water tables, it can um, prevent floods, it can protect farmland from flooding, it can protect farmland from drought, it can provide the pollinating insects. And we're not just talking honeybees, we're talking night flying moths and hoverflies and all the myriad brilliant pollinators that are out there. Um, and the natural pest control. So, you know, reducing the need for pesticides, because if you have a healthy ecosystem, you've got fantastic pest control out there. Um, think of all the extreme weather events that are hitting us all the time and going to be increasing as climate change takes takes hold. Um, rewilding can provide the physical buffers to protect agricultural mm. land. Have you already seen that at NEP? I was going to ask you that. Or do you have you suffered from droughts and floods similarly because they're so extreme already? We had that in the first year of lockdown, I think, when we're all so aware of the climate and every day, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're much more aware of it. We had that really hot summer um, and a very, very dry spring. And in the old days when we were farming, that kind of weather would be guaranteed to crack up our land. You would literally be able to put your fist into the cracks up to your shoulder. Wow. And it would look like an African drought. All the farmland around us looked like that. And our hearts went out to farmers because we knew what that felt like. But mm. on the land at NEP, we couldn't find any cracks. It was the, the soil is now holding on to so much moisture that it was actually being much, much more resilient. We mm. know that in times of big rains, we've been having quite a few recently, buildings and roads downstream from us that always used to flood just don't flood anymore. And we know that water that comes onto NEP, that we test, you know, the water comes on from farmland and from roads around us, is always polluted with nitrates and just general pollutants. But once it's been through our now functioning soils and the filtration system of our vegetation, the standing water on NEP everywhere is of the highest possible quality. So we're also cleaning the water. We're sort of already beginning to do the work of beavers, 
um, in that respect. Um, but you know, they could, they could still be the, the icing on the cake. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Izzy, have there been, I mean, you document, uh, these sorts of things so brilliantly in your book, but were there any surprises along the way where things happened and in your wildest dreams, you never thought it'd be possible? Well, I think we didn't have any real goals or targets. That's the joy, I think, of rewilding mm. is you're not, you know, you're not trying to work to with an ambition of There's achieving no these particular per species se. targets. We were just hoping that, broadly speaking, biodiversity would increase. And I think we've been surprised in every sort of respect from just the abundance of species the songbirds, we, we had a um, BTO survey, uh, I think it was last year or the year before now, uh, that is indicating that we may have the highest density of songbirds in Britain at NEP. Wow. Um, you okay. know, literally you can feel it when you mm. go out on a, and hear the dawn chorus in April. It's just mind-blowing surround sound noise. I think the rarity of the species has also absolutely blown us away. So you know, turtle doves probably being the most poignant because the RSPB mm. reckons that they are the most likely bird to go extinct in the next generation. And when I was growing up in the 1960s, we had 250,000 turtle doves in Britain. They were the, you know, the backdrop to my summers. You know, I used to hear that lovely tour tour and it was synonymous with long, lazy, you know, hmm. school holidays. And now we're down to probably fewer than 3,000. I think there was a county-wide survey in Sussex um, last year or the year before that identified 80 territories of um, turtle doves and a quarter of those are on NEP. So oh, wow. Gosh. I think it's probably too late to save the turtle dove for Britain because it's probably now dropped way below its critical mass. But it does show that, you know, the potential is there. And mm. if we can start mending our landscapes, healing our land and providing lovely, thorny, scrubby habitat, we might be able to save species like the nightingale. Mm. In relation to that, the, the obvious question is, does size matter? And how do you often tell people, encourage people no matter what to do this? Absolutely. I mean, I think we, Charlie and I are now working on the book of rewilding, which we hope is going to be a kind of practical guide um, or a sort of, you know, a, a book of ideas about rewilding. So from big and small. So from net Great. size to farm clusters, to small holdings, to cities, to river catchments, to your own back garden, Amazing. an orchard, a graveyard your roadside verges, what can you do? And mm. I think um, some of the principles of rewilding can very easily be applied to small scale. I mean, for a start, going chemical free is an obvious solution. Yes. I mean, that is a game changer instantly. But I think thinking in terms of connectivity. So, you know, even if you've got a window box outside your flat in a city, mm. if you can plant up native species or wildflowers or, or, or plants that are good for pollinating insects or even with seed and berry resources for birds, it's worth thinking about how does that connect? How can you work as a stepping stone around you? You know, mm. so if there's nothing around you at all, you're going to have very little influence, just your window box. But if you can persuade your neighbors to have window boxes 
or someone to have plant pots on their steps outside their front door. If you can persuade your council to let the verges be allowed to, you know, to grow um, and sustain wildflowers, then suddenly you're part of an integrated system where you will then start to see insects and birds come to your window box. So it's about kind of that spark that ignites a chain reaction that can happen in your neighbourhood. That's mm. so exciting. I mean, how, how far can the project at NEP go? What are you thinking is next? I feel like it's just so exciting every turn you take. Other than beavers. Well, again, we're thinking very much... <laughs> Other than beavers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, of course, that's next on the agenda. But we are, you know, in that theme of connectivity, NEP on its own is a bubble. It's an island. Hmm. And, you know, certain birds can, can move not all of them, some are very territorial and they need complex habitats. But basically, we're a biodiversity hotspot that is longing to spill out into the wider landscape. Unless there's habitat for them out there, they're not going anywhere. And we desperately need connectivity in order for our species to be able to move in response to climate change, hmm. um, as well as, of course, to pollution and extreme weather events and everything else. And of course, they have to meet up with other populations of their own species if they're going to be able to sustain genetic yeah. diversity. So connection is everything. And so now we're working on this wonderful project called the Wheel to Waves project with um, a farmer who has the last piece of land between Bognor and Brighton that's undeveloped pretty much. Oh, wow. Called the Climping Gap. He's a wonderful farmer, James Baird. In fact, he's coming over this evening for supper. We're going to be thrashing out the Wheel to Waves project again. Um, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so it, um, we want to connect NEP ultimately with the sea via the Climping Gap, but also north towards the Ashdown Forest. Have this fantastic, regenerated nature corridor with biodiversity mm. hotspots along it, like kind of like the pearls on a necklace joining Ashdown via NEP to the sea. And eventually we hope to see seals popping on the beach um, at Climping, space for wading birds again, but also that connection between the Help the Kelp Marine Conservation Project off the Sussex coast, which is so exciting, connecting with terrestrial nature restoration. Um, and that's going to be really, really exciting. That's our future. But also, of course, beavers... Um, and of course, one day bison, maybe elk, um, you name it. Wow. Our ambitions kind of grow by the year. Good, as they should, um, given that experience. Um, ours are similarly growing, actually. We're, we're looking at river buffers and that connectivity story and, and what can be done to, uh, and we've formed an NGO partnership um, called Riverscapes with National Trust, Woodland Trust and Rivers Trust. And obviously there's a big policy stick or, or carrot, whichever way you look at it, <laughs> required. But do you think there's enough mass understanding as well of the benefits of these nature corridors and the benefits of strong biodiversity for farming outcomes to, to help that along? Or do you think actually there's a huge education still required? I think there's a huge education still required. I think people are beginning to get it. Um, I think the wider public are beginning to get it, farmers are beginning to get it, but we, we need to keep hammering home this idea that it's not just um, about fluffy wildlife. Um, and I love what the Beaver Trust is doing because, you know, I, I love how you've taken it to landscape scale transformation. And of course, river catchments, massively important. 
when mm. we look at our the way our river systems are i mean in such a terrible state i mean we are still the sick man of europe in that respect and mm. and how we have to think in terms of landscape scale you know from the water falling on the the hilltops to the moment it reaches the sea and everything in between and yeah. of course the beaver with its movement is is absolutely key for that but i think as you say i th i think that um we need to keep hammering home the fact that it's not just about the pleasure and the joy of having wildlife back in our landscapes of course that's true it's about the systems that underpin our own survival hmm. we are at crisis point and we we keep have to mentioning have to have to have to keep mentioning the elephant in the room you know this yeah. is Mm. This is it. This is the generation, that the decade where we could turn things around. It's completely within our ability, yeah. mm. but we have to make sure it gets done. So, so beavers give us a lot of hope. And I think the NEP gives the, um, a lot of the British public hope. What gives you hope that we can do more to turn this around, Izzy? Well, I think just the, the response to rewilding, the response mm. to having beavers back in our landscape. Um uh, you know, we, we did attempt to introduce beavers to NEP. Um, it was the year before last now. I keep forgetting we're in 22. But um, we did have an attempt. We, we were one of the few licenses where we didn't have to actually put them into an enclosure. Um, we could just release them into um, the southern block of the estate. And we thought that they'd be there for 10 years because there's so much wetland and lovely sallow for them to be playing around with. Um, and within about two weeks, they were gone. Um, and they had gone adventuring. But what was so encouraging, I think, was the public response to seeing beavers out there in the landscape. <laughs> One of our beavers crossed 20 weirs and ended up near Shoreham, actually ended up on, a, on a, a piece of organic land, organic farmland. So it had, you know, great judgment. Good taste. Um, yeah. But your good taste. But on the way, it was spotted, you know, on riverside walks and people were sending in video clips. They were so excited and um the other beaver went in the opposite direction and ended up on a farm on, on a an angling pond and billy they called her the, the anglers the um uh the angling club and we brought billy back reinstalled her worked out on the webcams where she got out reinforced the fencing and the next week she was back there on that angling pond <laughs> and they loved her um they really yeah, you know so they good. said are you sure there's no way we can keep her and unfortunately you know our license you know we, we had to have her return to NEP mm. so I think that excitement and that understanding that we could have a wilder more beautiful, more exciting landscape to live in. And I think people understanding that we are missing so much hmm. has really yes. um, taken hold. And I think that's the most That's hopeful. a really good point. Thank you, yeah. Izzy, of course, we can't talk to you and not mention that you have another book coming out soon-ish or on the way. Do well, we that's, know that's when the that... book of That's the book of rewilding. Um, the, okay. Um, so... Uh, that is due out on the spring 23. Okay. Um, and yes, yeah, so I hope that will be kind of inspiring and helpful for mm -hmm. people who are interested in rewilding, but also, you know, transforming their own plot or how they can get involved. Yeah. It will have a lot of resource material places to to connect with people to to help with, with um, getting a, a wilder world for us all. Um, 
And I've got a children's book coming out, um, oh. I think, later this year, which is uh, when, when the Storks Came Home. So oh, that's about our wonderful. White reintroduction project. Oh, well, we'll definitely have to do some shouting about that. And um, just as a, a quick sort of side question, what's your writing process look like? Because obviously nature is a huge inspiration for you and you have such a unique connection and a, and a journey with nature. Do you enjoy, do you find catharsis in, in writing about it and kind of reflecting on on your relationship with it? Yes, I do. I mean, you can see the state of my office that's rewilded itself. Yes, um, it's but, dreamy. <laughs> but um, I do, I love writing and I've done it since my early 20s and um, Wilding was my fifth book, I think. So um, I I sort of, you know, I, I think probably every writer has a love-hate relationship with it because you're, you spend a lot of time on your own. It is quite gruelling. It takes a long time to get that feedback ultimately from your publisher or whoever's going to read it first. Um, but there's also something, you know, you get very deep into it. And for me, writing about the project here, Rewilding at NEP, was so interesting because, you know, in a, over a period of 20 years, you forget those moments of epiphany or mm. the moments of jeopardy or when you were really up against it and thinking, oh, my God, is this going to work? Have we done the right thing? Or, um, you know, battling with trying to get the message across that it was all going to, it was working and that mm. we should be celebrating. Um, so it was a very interesting process, kind of reliving particularly the early days of, of, of the project. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to those books, particularly the children's yeah. one myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also doing wilding for, for, for teenage, for youngster, for young people. So I think it's for sort of 12 to 13 age bracket. So it's, oh, a, it's a sort of digest of the main themes of, of wilding for... Yeah, for difficult age children. group to, to reach as well. So that's really great that you're, you're targeting them. I think that's all we've got time for today, actually. <laughs> alas. Oh. Alas, alas. <laughs> Although we'll be watching your the beaver evolution in the next few months. That this evolution. might be out by the time the beavers are there. So I we'll hope see. so. I hope I so. I so. don't jinx Huge it, luck. but we're, we're crossing our fingers. And I think our approach this time... We're going to put them in a, a temporary enclosure. Um, and we hope this time we have a bonded pair. I think that was my, one of the problems with the last pair. And we will put them in a temporary enclosure and wait for them to build their lodge and a mm. dam and start make, you know, doing their wonderful um, hydrological engineering. And that, we hope, will heft them to the spot. So we also last time released them in November, which I think is the time you can correct me when when they're actually beginning to look for partners for breeding and so i think they were being particularly adventurous in search of <laughs> in search of you know um other love interests they obviously weren't interested in each other <laughs> so hopefully releasing them in the spring and giving them a time to get used to nep will we hope um encourage them to commit to us we have everything crossed for you. <laughs> Tales you. from the new Love Island to follow. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dear, brilliant. Well, we can't wait to see what happens. Um, and I'm sure everyone will follow it with interest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, fascinating. Thanks, and it's, it's so exciting in the directions it could go. So let's hope it's, you know, everything continues well. No pleasure. Well, thanks so much for having me and absolutely love what you do. Oh, wow. How good was that? Absolutely amazing. Um, Izzy Tree talking live about Nep. I know. I just, 
I envy her so much. What an amazing life to lead, to to be, to have all that responsibility mm. and all that success in conservation and nature restoration. And oh, it's just dreamy. Think, it's amazing. Yeah, I think I'm I'm so impressed by her attitude towards it because I feel like your average person would just feel they've they've just overcome so many unbelievably enormous challenges, and yet they haven't felt defeated. Or if they have felt defeated, they've risen up and then just made something yeah. incredible. And I think they're, if they can do it, anyone can do it. And I feel like if they can kind of have an industrial farming background that's 200 years old from the family yeah. and yet they still can change their mindset and respond to the times, mm. I think it's, mm. it's And lead hopeful. the way. It's yeah. such leadership. Yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. Right. The end of this episode is in sight, which can only mean one thing. It's time to be quizzed. Yes, buckle up, Eva. This one is uh, well, and Emma. It's, and Emma, out of your course. Box. Emma, out your box. Come on down. Oh, I'm just getting getting limbering up to be <laughs> buckle released. up, strap in, ladies, because we've got a fascinating quiz about the water cycle coming. <laughs> oh yes. <gasps> oh no, I'm going to be so bad at this already. I know this. No, but it's not really. I think the title's misleading because it's. This is Sophie's water. quiz, Emma. Don't worry. <laughs> Not yeah, it's it, 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 it's probably it going to be a logical hate. path. <laughs> yeah, is it more or less logical than the what three words quiz? The <laughs> infamous terrible <laughs> quiz of Chilean. That was. I think we were all. We must. There must have been something in the air that day. We were all completely off our rocker. <laughs> that, that was a very episode. giggly episode. It was fun. Fun support. Episode together. one of season two. If you would like to listen back to Chilean <laughs> on fire. <laughs> and us just bonkers. Anyway, quiz, water cycle. Question one. How much fresh water on planet Earth can we actually see? Is it A, 5%? C, uh, hang on, B goes before C, doesn't it? <laughs> B, 0.5% or C, 0.3%. How much fresh water on planet Earth can we actually see? 5%, 0.5 or 0.3? Well, none of them are very much. That's quite cool. Cool fact. Um, Thanks. Eva, what do you think? I think I'm going to go 5%. How, how are we defining C? C, I'd say from a like a aerial if, if we're looking, kind yeah, of okay. I'm perspective. Going, I'll go 0.5 then because I'm I'm guessing it, so much is stored in like really deep lakes and thick mm. glaciers and things, right? What did you say, Eva? Such a good point. Yeah, I said 5%. I'm regressing it. <laughs> okay. But I'm going to stick both- with it. You're both incorrect. It no. is 0.3%. There's actually more fresh water in the atmosphere than in all the oh, rivers wow. combined. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought of that. That's a good point. Mm. Clouds. Nice. Ah. Cool. Question two. How much of Earth's water is salty? Is it A, 97%, B, 88%, or C, 92%? 97, 88, or 92? Salty. Hmm. Is this including the water in the atmosphere? <laughs> oh yeah. No. Um. I'm gonna go right in the middle. Ninety-two. Isn't that I indecisive was, of me? Yeah. I'm gonna fence it as well with ninety-two. In that case, I'll go ninety-seven. Oh no. Okay. Eva's correct. It's ninety-seven. Pushed you. <laughs> yeah. Pushed you in the right direction. Thanks for that. And question three follows on from Ooh. that answer. And the remaining fresh water, where is the majority of that stored? A, 
the atmosphere. Yes. Uh, gosh, look at my notes. I've gone ACD. <laughs> wow. Oh, no. Oh, oh, Can we trust the reliability of this quiz? Is it A, the atmosphere? Uh, B, <laughs> rivers? Or D, <laughs> can't do The atmosphere, rivers, or ice caps and glaciers? Oh, I'm going ice caps and glaciers. What was the first que- What was the question? <laughs> The remaining, the remaining three yeah. percent of fresh water. Yeah, where is the majority? Where's the majority stored? ice caps? Okay, you're both correct, and that means that all life on Earth only has access to one percent of Earth's water. How mad is Bonkers, that? Bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Mad. Good, but very well difficult. Done, quiz either, there. either one. I know what my next quiz is going to be. It's the alphabet. The alphabet. <laughs> 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 with that let's call time on this episode of the Lodgecast. i think <laughs> don't forget that to celebrate this series we're giving away a few copies of bringing back the beaver a book by friend of beaver trust Derek gow about reintroducing beavers in the uk yes and for a chance to win you can post about how much you love the Lodgecast by tagging at beaver trust and using hashtag the Lodgecast on twitter or instagram or you can leave us a review on apple Podcasts or spotify and email us a screen grab of it so that we know it was you on info at beavertrust.org yes and we'll announce the winners at the end of the series yes and don't forget this series we are releasing our episodes weekly so we'll see you next tuesday for another superb quiz on the alphabet and a brilliant chat with arlen rickard obe founder of the west country rivers trust and later the whole umbrella rivers trust organization and is now their chief policy advisor after 25 years of leading the movement that is going to be amazing Yes, please make sure you have subscribed to the Lodgecast on your platform of choice so that you don't miss it. And for more from Beaver Trust, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Beaver Trust. Head over to our website, beavertrust.org and sign up to our free newsletter. See you next week. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. 